We live in a culture that is all about tolerance, all about open-mindedness. Now, it may not all be about that, but sometimes you get the idea that that's the only value that people have is that you're open-minded, that you're tolerant. And what that means in our culture and our society almost is like people want you just to open up your mind and let your brains fall out. But that's not tolerance. And yet as Christians, we are commanded to be tolerant. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, as we continue to talk about this idea of what it is to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, worthy of the calling that you have received, one of the things that Paul tells these Christians is that you tolerate one another in love. I want us to finish this idea this morning by looking at these final phrases that Paul uses here in Ephesians chapter 4, 1 and 2. I want us to understand what this concept of tolerance is that Paul has in mind. I want us to think about the idea of our calling. What is that? Because Paul is talking within the context of receiving that calling. And I want us to think about what that means for us as Christians today. So if you have your Bibles, hopefully by now, You've turned to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, and we can begin looking at this idea of tolerance that Paul has in mind. Again, look at the context one last time this morning. Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Paul tells these Christians, look guys, I want you to do all these things, but I want you to show tolerance for one another in love. Some translations may say to endure, to bear with. That's a little bit different than our political concept of tolerance today, which says if someone's doing something that is wrong, if someone is doing something that is evil, if someone is doing something that is contrary to God's desire, the idea of tolerance in our politically correct culture today is you just let them do that and you just be happy about it. That's the way many people view tolerance today, but that's not what Paul's saying here. Paul's talking about the, in fact, the, the idea that you endure someone, you bear with someone. Now, it's hard for any of us to imagine that someone would have to endure us, right? Because we're all so good, we like to think. But it's true, sometimes someone might have to endure us. But it's the idea of not letting the person get in your skin. It's the idea of bearing with someone, as opposed to accepting something that's wrong. Now, sometimes this word is used, for instance, in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12, I believe it is, uh, or 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12, uh, uh, when Paul says that there's going to come a time in which men will not endure, or some translations say, accept sound teaching. But the way that this word is used here, anytime it's a reference to another person, it's the idea of enduring or bearing with someone. You're patient with them, as he's already mentioned. 
You continue to get along with them. You continue to work alongside of them, even if there may be some things that you don't appreciate or like about the individual. You endure them. Now, it's important for us to notice the context because Paul uses a little phrase there, and he says, with one another. Endure one another in love. And the idea of love there is that agape love, that self-sacrificing love. The context that Paul's talking about here in the letter to the Ephesians is a context of a church in which there apparently was some tension, some conflict between Jewish members of the church and Gentile members of the church. And when I say that, I say that cautiously. I back up a little bit because there are many scholars who look at the the oldest manuscripts of the book of Ephesians that we have, and it's almost like it was a, a form letter. There is literally a space in the Greek text as if the person that was reading the letter was to insert the name of the city that the letter was written to. And many scholars believe that maybe Ephesus was the last city in this little circuit that this letter traveled to. There's no way of knowing that for sure, but it's an interesting idea. Whatever the case, throughout the ages, this letter has always been associated with the church at Ephesus. It was a cosmopolitan city. It was the largest city in uh, Asia Minor, at the, what you and I would call Asia Minor. The, the Romans would have just called it Asia. Uh, but it was the leading city of commerce and trade. It was such a prominent city that whenever, even though it wasn't a capital city, whenever the Roman emperor came to Asia, he always stopped in Ephesus. It was an unwritten rule. They had a marble road that went from the port all the way down to the center of the city for the Roman governor, the Roman emperor, to travel on. It was a prominent, prominent city. And so you had people from all over the world that came to Ephesus. When we look at the letter to the Ephesians, we see Paul talking about uh, some of this conflict uh, that existed. Notice again, we go back to Ephesians chapter 2, uh, for instance, uh, and, and Paul talks about, notice in verse 11, he says, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, were also called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope without God and without God in the world. And he talks about, uh, that little tension that existed between the circumcised, that would be the Jewish folks, and the uncircumcised, that would be the Gentile pagans that were now Christians. And you had that little conflict. And yet, Paul, if you look at it, he goes even further. He says, verse 14, For he himself is our peace. He made the two groups into one, broke down the dividing wall, or the barrier of the dividing wall, by abolishing in his flesh the law of commandments, so that he himself might make the two into one new man, establishing peace, so that he might reconcile them both in one body to God through, through the cross by having put to death the enmity, in which he then goes on to describe as being the law itself. When you look at that, it's obvious there was conflict that Paul was having to deal with. In many of the letters that Paul writes to churches, you have this conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles. So you roll all that up and you bring that back to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, and there were folks in the church that came from different backgrounds. 
I'm not just talking about, you know, I'm from Pittsburgh and you're from, you know, uh, Florida kind of conflict. Uh, you like the Aggies and I like the Longhorns. I don't know anyone who would say those types of things. You know, you like the Sooners and I like the, uh, you know, the Pokes of, of, of Stillwater. You know, those are, those are significant conflicts, right? But we're talking about real, real uh, conflicts. Someone who has lived their entire life as a pagan. Doing all sorts of things. Not considering morality to be something that guides your life. And then someone over here who's come up their entire life believing that you have to follow the Ten Commandments and you have to follow all the rituals and sacrifices of the Old Testament. Those are significant cultural things. We're talking about a, a group of people in the Jews uh, who, the ones that were devout, uh, considered themselves so much separated from the, from the rest of the community that even though they lived in a, a Gentile city, would associate only with Jews, do everything at the Jewish synagogue in that city, and have very little interaction with the Gentiles. And now you're one church? Paul says sometimes you have to tolerate each other. We're talking about a tremendous learning curve that needs to go on in that church. And so Paul's talking to these Christians. He says, look, you need to be gentle with one another. You need to be uh, patient with one another. You need to have humility. But then he says in this final phrase, he says, you need to have tolerance, showing tolerance or endurance or bearing up with one another. He's not talking about those outside the church although certainly he would continue to speak to our relationships with those outside the church and other places. But his idea here is inside the church, the conflict that can exist. And he says you do that with self-sacrificing love. And he says here's why you need to do that. Again, as we look at the context in Ephesians chapter 4. As he goes on to say, being diligent to, to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. All those things that he just talked about in chapter 2 that we referenced a second ago. Our purpose as a church, a one purpose, one tool, one strategy, is that we preserve the unity of the body and the bond of peace. Paul says, how do you walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have received? It's to conduct yourself inside the church in these ways. Humility, patience, gentleness, showing tolerance for one another in love. Everyone outside the world is looking at the church. What kind of a perception of the church do they have when they see a church that is backbiting, divided, and tearing one another up? Is that the point at which people say, oh, wonderful, I so desperately want to become a Christian now. Look how well those folks get along. No. That doesn't persuade anyone to say, oh, Christianity is a good thing. I want a piece of that. What did Jesus say in John chapter 13 and verse 35? They will know you are my disciples when you have Love for one another. 
Jesus says, they will know you are my disciples when you have love for one another. And so Paul here in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, show tolerance for one another, bearing with one another, enduring one another in love, self-sacrificial love. We'll come back to that in just a few moments. But before we do, we want to begin to think about, well, what is this calling that Paul's talking about? If Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have received, what is that calling? How does that play into our understanding of what it is that Paul is asking us to do? I want us to look at a couple different passages. Let's start in Romans chapter 1. Notice what Paul has to say to us, beginning in Romans chapter 1. Look at verse 3. Start in verse 3. He says, Concerning his son, who was born of the descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's easy for us when we look at the beginning of New Testament letters to kind of pass over those things and to say, well, that's just Paul's intro. Now, I don't really need to notice the intro, right? Because every, every sermon, every, every speech, every book, every article has an intro. So I can just pass over that. But the intro, the introduction, is the part where every speaker... Every writer says, here is my thesis. I don't know if Paul sat down and said, here's my thesis statement. But that's what you do. And Paul's saying, we are the called of Jesus Christ. We miss this in English. But the Greek word for the church is ecclesia, the called out. You can get it in Spanish because the Spanish word for church is iglesia, right? They sound very similar. The called out. We have been called by Jesus to come out of the world and live separately. Now, that doesn't mean we go build a compound somewhere and we all wear funny clothes and funny hats and, and do the same thing every day. But it means that we come out of the world to live differently, to be sanctified, to be holy, to be set aside for a special purpose. And Paul says we are called by Jesus Christ or of Jesus Christ through his death, through his burial, and through his resurrection. That's what Paul's saying. He says that's what I've been preaching to you guys, Romans chapter 1, verse 2 following. That was my message. That was the gospel. That's what you clung to. Galatians chapter 1. About verse 5, verse 6, 
Paul says, I am so amazed that you are so quickly abandoning the gospel by which you have been called. Again, there's that word, call. Kaleo. That's for homeschool. Kaleo. I call. I've been called. We are the called. And so when we plug that back into Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul's not just making some little phrase, walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have received. He's saying you have been called out of the world to live differently. Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of that calling. Come out. Be separate. Be my disciple. And one of the ways that we do that as his church is how we treat each other. How we love each other. How we get along with each other. The attitudes that we have. Now, some of these things that we've stated over the last month as we've looked at each of these terms, humility, uh, patience, gentleness, and now tolerance, showing tolerance for one another. As we look to some of these terms, we see some of these in other places extended outside the church. The fruit of the Spirit, patience, gentleness. We see those there. Uh, we've seen how we are to interact with those outside the church with gentleness and with patience, 1 Peter chapter 3. And so some of these are attributes that we should have all of the time, not just those within the church. But Paul's saying, look, guys, as a church, we have a purpose. We have a function, and we have to work together to get that done and endure with one another. One of the hardest passages, I believe, to follow in the Bible is Philippians chapter 2. We know Philippians chapter 2 because of the great doxology that, there, that is there, because it talks about Jesus humbling himself. Paul says, uh, live in the same manner uh, as Jesus Christ who humbled himself to this point, uh, beginning in verse 5. But we back up a few verses, and notice what Paul says. He's saying almost the exact same thing here as he is in Ephesians 4. Notice what he says. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Folks, is that hard to do? To not only look out for my own interests, but for the interests of others? Are you kidding me? Have you seen that guy? You want me to look out for his interests first and not just do my own thing? To me, this is a tough, tough passage to practice because it flies in the face of everything that, especially we as Americans, living in Western culture, has been taught to do. To put others first, above ourselves, and yet, why is Paul saying that in Ephesians chapter 4 and Philippians chapter 2? 
It's because as a church, we ought to have one purpose. In general, you could say, well, that's to glorify God. You plug in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. It's to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've taught you. Our purpose is to be God's ambassadors in this world and to share the gospel. And there's a lot of other things that go along with it. But when we are intent on one purpose, we are working together, striving to do that. So you go back to Ephesians chapter 4, and you read the entire chapter, and Paul's saying, look, he gave some to be apostles, and some to be uh, prophets, and some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, so you can get all this done. And it's only going to get done when everyone is supplying what they can to the building up of the church in love. And that's a paraphrase of the rest of the chapter, but that's what this entire chapter is about, Ephesians chapter 4. But what happens is many times as we work together as a church, we start to realize not everyone has the same personality that I do. Not everyone has the same outlook that I do. Not everyone has the same preference that I do. And when we, when we get in those conditions, we, you know, we get grumpy. We might get mean. And Paul says, sometimes you have to endure the person that's not just like you. And what happens is when we don't do that, that's when the church starts to break down. That's when the church no longer functions in a way that is worthy of the calling we have received. That's when the church no longer becomes a bastion of hope that other people look at and say, you know what, maybe that's the place I ought to be. I think I want to become a Christian. Enduring one another, tolerating one another means sometimes, you know, there's someone, I, if, if we were out on the job force, if we were out... Uh, just in the community, I might not become that person's best friend. But as brothers and sisters in Christ, we're going to get along. We're going to be able to worship together. We're going to be able to serve together. And so Paul says that's what it is to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you ever see. So now that we've touched on that, we've looked at what the idea of tolerance is, we've looked at the context, and we've looked at the idea of calling. What is that idea? What is the idea behind calling? Let's think about what it is to practice these things as a church. We look back at Philippians chapter, chapter 2. And Paul says, first of all, you have to have humility. And he says that here in Ephesians chapter 2. Have that humility. Don't automatically assume that things have to be done your way or that you know best. Sometimes the reality is you may think you know best, but maybe somebody else has a different idea that's just as good or maybe better than your own idea. Humility is that aspect of our lives that allows us to step back and say, you know what, that's okay. I don't have to think I'm the best. I don't have to think my idea is the best idea. I'm willing to consider what other people are saying. And then Paul said, do that with patience. And that was that idea that we saw a couple weeks ago uh, where, where Paul says, you know, sometimes you have to correct other folks. But you do so in a loving manner 
that allows them time to make that change. Remember we talked about 2 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul tells Timothy, he says, your job is to teach and exhort and rebuke and refute with great patience and instruction. And so patience and tolerance doesn't mean that you just let everything go just because we're going to accept everything. Because if you do that, then you've forgotten the one purpose. But you do it with the idea of, I want to help somebody grow. And I want to reach out to them and help them grow in a way which allows them to make those steps they need to make to make that change and to make that growth. And that idea of gentleness is I'm going to do that in a way in which I don't just come at them with guns blazing. I'm going to find a way to say it in a way that's not going to destroy their ability to accept that. And then there's that idea of enduring. And that I, sometimes you just have to realize that someone's going to get under your skin. And you just got to let it roll off your back. And that's one of the hardest things for us to learn sometimes, to just let things roll off your back. You think that's true? You know? Uh, we've got to teach our young people, our kids. Yeah, you're right. That person shouldn't have said that to you. Or, yeah, I know that hurt your feelings. Uh, I know that was a bit rough. But sometimes you just got to let it roll off your back. And there's a balance there. Because sometimes you do need to go to someone and say, you know, that, that was really hurtful. I don't know if you meant for this to come out this way. I, I don't know if this is what you meant to say, but this really hurt me. And then if the person says, man, I didn't realize that, you can forgive them. And so there's a time for you to go ahead and say, you know, that, that really hurt me. We need to resolve this. And it's, a lot of times, we just need to let things roll off our back. And if you're going to say, I'm going to let something roll off my back, what that means is you let it roll off your back, you never bring it up. Right? As opposed to, you are always telling Aggie jokes. <laughs> Everything you do is an Aggie joke. Okay, and, you know, you let it fester and fester and fester until you want to go clobber the guy. Well, the answer is just don't be an ag. I mean, the answer is, you know, <laughs> I'm teasing. Okay. But sometimes we say we're going to let things roll off our back, and we don't. So we've got to be careful that if we're going to take that attitude, that that's what we're going to do. But we need to practice the idea of bearing with one another, realizing sometimes in the church we're going to not always see eye to eye. What is our goal here for Bender? We want to reach out to our community with the gospel. We want to be intent on that purpose. We want to think about the ways that we can do that. Sometimes we may try an idea, and it's not going to work. And after we tried a few times, we realize this is not working. We need to try something else. And sometimes I'll bounce ideas off of somebody, and I'll say, you know, is this working the way that, you know, I don't think, you know, and, they're going to say, you know, I think we need to keep trying for a little bit. Okay. We can do that. But sometimes we may try things, and we may find that they work, and we do them for a period of time, and they may work for a period of time, and then they don't work anymore. And you need to be able to say, this isn't working anymore. Let's try something else. And not say, Pfft. I came up with that idea 10 years ago, and it worked just fine back then. Yeah, but it's not working anymore. I was at a church in Mesquite. 
And this church back in the 70s, late 60s, early 1970s, started the Joy Bus Ministry. You remember the Joy Bus Ministry? Man, that was popular for a long time, and it was effective. But I was there in the 2000s when they were still doing the Joy Bus. And it wasn't really working well. But there are people, we've been doing the Joy Bus. We're the last church in the area to do the Joy Bus. There's a reason for that, right? But there are some folks, they did not want to stop the Joy Bus ministry. And they sunk tons and tons of the church budget into the Joy Bus. And it kept them from doing some other things they needed to do. Eventually, the elders moved on to other ministries. So sometimes we need to understand that those things happen. As we grow as a church, we want to do what we can. We want to be intent on one purpose. We want to be God's servants, reaching the lost. And we want to be effective doing that. In order for us to do that, we have to all be on that same page, all be on that same mindset, all have that same love. And as I look at the folks that are here this morning, we are. We are. And I want us to continue moving forward with that idea. And if we do that, I'm confident God is going to bless us in that endeavor. If you're here this morning and you have prayers that you need the church to make on your behalf, you have concerns that you want the church to be aware of, or you have other needs, whatever your need, won't you together we stand and sing.